Welcome to All Right in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair. This recording takes place online in the era of safe physical distancing. Ava Homa is a writer, journalist, and activist specializing in women's issues and Middle Eastern affairs. Born and raised in the Kurdistan province of Iran, Homa now divides her time between Toronto and San Francisco. She holds an MA in English and Creative Writing from the University of Windsor. Her collection of short stories, Echoes from the Other Land, was long listed for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award and she is the inaugural recipient of the Penn Canada Humber College Writers in Exile Scholarship. Her short fiction and translations have appeared in several English and Farsi journals and newspapers, including the Literary Review of Canada, Rabble, the Windsor Review, and the Toronto Star. Daughters of Smoke and Fire is her debut novel, Welcome Ava Homa. Thank you, I'm excited to be speaking to you. Thanks so much for having me in your program. Absolutely, our pleasure. So when did you first fall in love with writing? It's been with me so long uh, that I can't really pinpoint a date. Um, my mom loves to say that even when I was an infant, more than dolls, I love to have a pen and a paper and entertain myself. Um, but writing has always been my companion. It's my way of making sense of life it's my way of getting creative it's also a form of therapy for me so be it writing in my journals writing story or just planning my day uh, writing is always with me has always been unlike so many other things that came and went in my life there were a few years when i loved to dance and i performed the university of toronto but after a few years I kind of grew out of it. I was no longer interested in it. Photography was my passion for a few years, but only for three, four years. Whereas writing has been consistent and steady and reliable. Yeah. So you're a writer, a journalist, and an activist, and you've taught in both the college and university systems. How do you carve out time for your own writing? Do you have a particular routine that you keep yourself on track? Uh, Sarah, that's really uh, fighting time for writing is such a challenge and it does not go away with time. Um, depending on how my life is going on, I have to be very clear and decisive about the time I need to devote to writing. Nowadays, I have to wake up at 5 a.m. and I'm not a morning person. I do not enjoy it. It takes me 20, 25 minutes to actually wake up after I get up from the bed to get my coffee and do my yoga and finally actually wake up. But I don't have a choice. If I don't write between 5 to 7 a.m., then I cannot write at all. So, uh, but what I tell myself, because it's so easy to say, oh, I don't have time, I can't write. What I tell myself is that if I'm not creative enough to find time to write, then I'm really not a creative writer. So I have to find time, I don't have a choice. When I was in Windsor, I did most of my writing after midnight. Somehow, that point in my life, um, 
I could stay past midnight. I was young enough to do that. And with the silence and quiet of the night, I could actually get a lot of writing done. I remember like sometimes I would go to bed at 5 a.m. in Windsor, but it was also a point in my life where I could sleep in um, in the morning. So it really changes over time, depending on how old I am and what else, what other responsibilities I'm tackling. So to what extent has your journalism impacted your work as a, a fiction writer? How do the two disciplines interact? So as you uh, have seen in Daughters of Smoke and Fire, um, it's a fiction that has a lot of history and politics in its background. Um, living in the Middle East uh, is not easy, but also making meaning out of it, of, out of all the geopolitics over there is not an easy thing to do. It's not just difficult for Canadians, it's also even difficult for us because of so many, especially as a Kurd, you're not only dealing with the states that are ruling over you, like Iran, Turkey, Iraq, and Syria, but also with, say, like Turkey's relationship with the rest of the world, Iran's relationship with the rest of the world. All of these things impact who you are and how much room you have to exist and to express yourself. And so true journalism, um, I was able to go beyond just reading the news and writing about them. I also got to see patterns in the middle of this chaos that somehow repeated themselves. And so it helped me not be so overwhelmed by the realities, but rather in a way uh, be able to make some sort of sense of this nonsense that is going on. Also journalism gave me the chance to interview so many people from so many different walks of life. And I think that also uh, such a vital and important thing for a novelist because you hear all these different voices, all these different ways of looking at life and pushing ahead. So in a, in a sense, I can say that journalism has really helped add layers to the stories that I write about. Just very quickly, you mentioned that doing all of that helped you to see some patterns in all of the geopolitics. What kind of things did you observe? So, I mean, this, this is a very general question, but um, say like in October 2019, so less than a year ago, Trump randomly decides to withdraw U.S. Troop, troops from the Kurdish region in Syria, and then we we face uh, all the atrocities that happened right after that. So why did it happen? When did it happen? When only a few years back, say in 2015, the turning point in the war against ISIS were actually what the Kurds did. Because ISIS took over Syria and Iraq and it wasn't the hardest thing to do because those countries were already war-torn and chaotic. So it was a natural place for them to bloom. But then when they took over the Kurdish uh, lands like Kobani, which was protected by the Kurds, this was such a, a moment of victory for ISIS. They, they gave this aura of invincibility. They recruited a lot of people based on taking over Kobani. But then Kurds didn't run, well, some of them escaped, but a lot of them stayed inside. And, and while the Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan United States, so many countries in the world said, it's impossible for Kurds to take back Kobani. Kurds fought back. 
They didn't have half of the equipment that ISIS had. They didn't have as many fighters as ISIS had. The Kurds were surrounded on three sides from ISIS by ISIS, and on the other side, Turkey had closed down its border. So they weren't receiving um, even medicine and food and fuel um, because the Turkish border had closed down. But then at the same time, Kurds in Iran, uh, Iraq, and Turkey smuggled themselves in the, inside the city and fought ISIS. And their act was so heroic that Obama decided to support them with airstrikes. And they, sure enough, after four bloody months of war, they were able to take back their city. And that changed everything about ISIS because ISIS was no longer invincible, right? So then Kurds became this reliable ally for the international coalition. So how come after something like this, when they know they can only rely on Kurds to defeat ISIS, four years, this happened in 2015, then in 2019, you just let them be massacred by Turkey, you know? How do you understand this? How do you make sense of it unless you have been studying how history repeats its ugly face, how what Erdogan talks on the phone with Trump shapes your destiny. Now it's very horrifying, right? But at the same time, you aren't surprised. You know, you're, you're disappointed. You can't help being disappointed, but you aren't surprised because you have seen these betrayals over and over and over again. I hope I was able to answer your question. So when, you, when you're constantly keeping on, on top of what is going on, and how these things change, this relationship between the world powers change, then you predict something like that. And then it helps you, that mindset helps you that instead of getting overwhelmed by shock, or at least getting overwhelmed by shock for too long, then you stand up and you know what's next, what's coming up next. Does that make sense? Absolutely, thank you. Yeah. So let's talk about your latest book, your debut novel, Daughters of Smoke and Fire. It's set in Iran. It depicts a young woman with the family legacy of activism and her struggle to help and support her brother whose own activism has placed him in great danger. How did this project begin? Did it start with one particular character or voice that came to you? Right. So in 2010, uh, before my first book came out, uh, Echoes from the Other Land, I was in Toronto and it's so common for us to wake up to news of execution. This morning, I woke up to the news of Navid uh, Afkari um, um, getting executed by Iran, despite everything. And that one day in Toronto, I woke up to the news of a Kurdish teacher getting executed in Iran. And I had been following his letters. I wasn't the only one following his letter. His letters went viral on the internet. And everybody loved this man, not just for the power of his pen, but, but because of, for me, the greatest thing about him was his, his ability to maintain hope and to keep his inhumanity intact. Now, it's one thing for me to read about Gandhi and, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela, but it's another thing to, for me to read about a young Kurd from Iran being tortured in those nefarious prisons in Iran and still maintaining his hope and humanity because it's so easy to get into self-pity and lose hope, lose hope in humanity. Like how many times has this happened to us? And so for me to see this person able to hold on to those things and was so inspiring. So in a sense, like, because I was going through this problem of now I live in exile, 
I live, I write in my third language. No one really listens to me. I don't get censored in Canada. Nobody puts me in prison for writing what I, but I don't get hurt either. And I can't make money out of a degree in English. What am I supposed to do with my, my life? Should I continue writing? And then I saw him and I saw his writing and I saw uh, how he chose to spend his time in prison because obviously he couldn't change what was happening to him, but he, he controlled the, the only thing he had control on, which was how he was responding to what was happening to him. So seeing him, I picked up my pen again and I said, like, despite everything that I know about the inequality in the publishing world, the difficulty of making money as a, a person with a degree in English, I'm still wanting to write. So I wrote his story, but he was a man. And even though he's a remarkable hero, I couldn't stop imagining what his sister's, my, his Im, Im, imagined sister's life would be like. And so I wanted to put these two characters in contrast, Chia, who wants to be a lawyer, to, who wants to take the perpetrators of crime against humanity to the International Criminal Court, versus Leila, who's interested in arts and in films. And that is her way of making sense of her life and then how their paths intertwine. And so this is how Leila and Chia came to be in their stories. Um, ended up in Daughters of Smoke and Fire. Well, speaking of strong women, you're among a few Kurdish female authors who write about Kurdish history and culture as well as the ongoing statelessness of the Kurdish people. What do you most hope that people will take away from the books and the stories you've written about the Kurdish people? I think um, some of the best countries in the world now are going through um, this crisis of xenophobia and nationalism and this backlash against multiculturalism. And I think a book or books like Daughters of Smoke and Fire um, can help us understand our humanity or like have, have us read books that are set in other parts of the world and allow it to reflect back our humanity to us. And once we understand that connectedness, once we understand someone who doesn't look like us or doesn't sound like us, um, have had such similar experiences as a human being, then we won't be easily manipulated by people who um, bank on and invest in, in people's ignorance and fear. So literature is an antidote to fear and uh, if you replace fear with understanding and compassion, because I don't even believe in tolerance. Tolerance is very limited. You can only do so much. But once you actually know other people, um, you realize that then, then you won't be manipulated because of your fear. Then your vote wouldn't be shaped by fear. It would be shaped by awareness. And so in many ways, democracies that are in trouble right now could be saved really through reading literary fiction and having that ability to be someone else for a few hours, to experience life elsewhere on the planet for several hours that you're reading this novel. Um, because even if you do get to travel around the world, which is not very easy, not very safe to travel to a lot of places in the world, you won't be able to read between the lines and understand the culture and politics and history of a people by spending several weeks there. So you can gain so much by reading a novel in the comfort of your own home. 
Um, and that's really what I hope my novel offers people because my best experiences in life has been through reading powerful novels that have been set across the world. So I hope I can engage in this dialogue and pay back what I have received. In addition to touching people um, on a human level, how important is it to you that your writing serves as a tool for activism and the promotion of human rights? Um, so again, going back to that idea of um, sympathy and understanding, we're more willing to take action when we read the story versus when you read the news, because the news would tell you in this day, this many people died or were executed or whatever. But um, a story gives a, puts a human face on it. And so your activism become meaningful. You're now enabled to, to go out of your way to help another human being, right? So it's, it's one thing to um, read the news and sign a petition. It's another thing to read a story and talk to your neighbors about what you learned and think about what you can do as a human being to be part of the force that's moving the world toward becoming a more inclusive and more beautiful place. Because when I am inclusive, when I open my heart to diverse people, I'm not doing a favor to them more than anything. I'm doing a favor to myself, you know, and how can I bring in that awareness to enrich my own life? For me, it's mostly true fiction, even though I have spent so much of my life in journalism and it has helped me a lot. I, I, I doubt anything gives you the depth and the transformation, even the transcendence that novels can offer you. So what's your next project? I'm working on another novel right now. Um, I have my first draft. This is the story of a Yazidi girl who's kidnapped by ISIS. And this one is, again, another uh, homage to human resilience and asking the same question again, that what is it that makes some people so resilient, whereas others break? And uh, do we have that ability inside us, every one of us? And if we do, how can we tap into that power? And if we break initially under pressure, is it possible to put your pieces back together? and go on, and if so, how? So those are the questions I'm tackling now. Would you like to read something for our listeners? Absolutely. I'd like to just read the prologue for you. A woman alone on the mountain at dusk, an invisible boot pressed against my throat, making my breath labored and helpless, and yet I couldn't go back and face my parents or my stifled future. Hidden behind a boulder, I hugged my knees and imagined my rage and pain whirling into a wildfire, burning down all the injustices. Could my father have known what was going on? I wanted to tell him to share this burden with him. My shoulders were already heavy beneath the daily cruelties of living as a woman in Lanatawa, the damn place. This fatigue was incurable. The sun had sauntered down, disappeared behind Lake Zrebar. A dozen shades of rest, red burst open along the horizon. Below, the narrow winding asphalt road was the hem around the hill's green skirt, embroidered with clusters of red and yellow wildflowers. The Schler flowers stood elegant and tall, flourishing across the rough Kurdistan plateau. 
defying borders. I yearned to be a Schler, but I was a garden of anguish, of loathing, of torments. My occupied homeland was a birthplace of death. I stood up, my breath now coming in pants. I wasn't hiding anymore. Bessa, best, I shouted. It's enough, enough. I started down the hill in a tumbling run and found myself unable to stop. Despite the chill of the evening, I started sweating. The wind whipped my headscarf and I gained speed. I flapped as if I had wings. As I ran, a whale escaped my chest. I was headed toward the main road, toward the world of men. The streets belonged to them, judgmental men, hypocritical men. Their honor depended on women, men. Cars hurtled, <clears throat> hurtled around the curve, full of drunk drivers who honked as they spotted me sprinting down the hillside. They were going too fast for this road, too fast for their sluggish reflexes, and too fast for their old vehicles. A white late model car careened down the winding road, kicking up dust. The wind roared in my ears. The white car and whoever was driving seemed to seek me as a fellow traveler. Stumbled on a stone, crushing the shiny red poppies in the grass. As I lurched, all my untold stories tumbled inside me like pages ripped from a book and tossed, crumpled into the waste bin paper, waste paper bin. An overpowering urge to scream my story, to expel it from beginning to end seized me. Suddenly, I could see the head of all those curs crushed beneath tanks. Descending the slope at the breakneck pace, my shout crescendoing, I was unable to stop myself, this crazed woman. A final lunge and I was airborne. Ava Hama, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on All Right Sin City. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.